This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Love, courage, truth. Glenn Beck. If I can geek out just a little bit, uh, today's kind of an exciting day for me. I've wanted to talk to this guy since I read his first novel, Fatherland, which is one of my favorite books of all time. I just love it. Um, and, uh, you know, I've never been big enough to be able to get him on. Uh, he also did, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, the code. Uh, I'll have to ask him about it. Another great book, lots of great, uh, great stories, um, uh, and great novels, uh, from Robert Harris. He is the author of a new novel, uh, Munich, and it is all about the Munich treaty and, um, uh, Neville Chamberlain and what happened with Hitler. Um, uh, but he, he takes it the way he always does and um, works a, a new storyline into it. Welcome to the program, Robert Harris. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Glenn. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Uh, are you over in London? No, I live just outside, not far from Oxford okay. in the country. Um, it's, a, it's a thrill to have you on. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, uh, the book, but I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. And I, don't spoil it for me because I'm, I'm halfway through. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it revolves around, uh, Neville Chamberlain and, um, uh, I'm not a real fan of Neville, Neville Chamberlain, uh, and, and he gets kind of a bad rap. Um, why are you, what, 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 what is your attraction there? And I, it, it, I, I seem to think that you are a fan of his. Well, I wouldn't say I was a fan, to be honest, um, but I do think there are some stories in history which are really quite opposite to what most people think. About 30 years ago, I did a documentary for the BBC television about the 50th anniversary of the Munich Agreement. It's going to be the 80th anniversary this September. And I discovered that it was completely different to what I thought. In particular, um, Adolf Hitler regarded it as a terrible defeat. And, and that alone, I think, most people don't understand. And um, I wrote Fatherland, as, as you mentioned, but I always had in my, the back of my mind a desire to write a novel about the Munich Agreement, and I had the idea of writing it from the point of view of one of the officials who flew out with Chamberlain to meet Hitler uh, in September 1938. And then I, then I decided I'd also have a, a German character who travels on Adolf Hitler's train from Berlin to meet uh, Chamberlain at Munich. And so you follow these two men who were friends who were at Oxford University together uh, as they head towards Munich. And it gives me an opportunity to write a first-hand account of both Hitler and of Chamberlain. So how much, uh, how much, Robert, of the novel is, is really close to true? Uh, like, for instance, the, the plot to kill Hitler um, at that point, it, was that going on? Oh, yes. Um, um, everything in the book, really, pretty well is true, um, apart from these two invented characters, um, Paul Hartman and Hugh Leggett, the German and the Englishman, um, Yes. Um, I mean, essentially what happened was that Hitler uh, decided uh, in the beginning of the summer of 1938 um, that he would, for the first time, invade another country. And uh, he issued orders to the German army to prepare to wipe Czechoslovakia off the face of the map. That was how he termed it. 
and um, the army came back and said they could reckon they could do this in about five or six weeks. Uh, and he threw the plans back at them and said, I want, it, I want to be in Prague within a week. And elements of the German army took fright at this. It was the first time that they really woke up to the fact of where Hitler was likely to lead them. And for the first time, there were contacts between opposition elements in Berlin and the British government in London. And there was a slightly crazy scheme if the British and French declared war to try and arrest Hitler. I don't actually think it was that serious, but certainly it was the real first beginnings of the rumblings of a resistance to Hitler as the Germans realized what, what, where it was heading. Yeah, I was surprised when uh, Chamberlain um, arrives in Munich that there were, you know, the Oompa bands that were, that were playing, you know, uh, popular tunes from England, that the crowds cheered him. I, I always thought of, of the Germans uh, not for peace, and that's not what that's not what it was well no absolutely there's no doubt in the historical record about that that hitler according to all the reporters including the american newspapers who were there received much louder cheers whenever he appeared than hitler got and hitler was furious about this one of the reasons i wrote the novel was because i came across um, there's a journalist a german journalist called joachim fest who was the ghostwriter on the memoirs of albert speer the hitler's armament minister and this in this diary um, Fest asked Speer one day back in the 60s, what did Hitler feel about Munich? And uh, uh, Speer said uh, Hitler was in a rage for two weeks after Munich. He wouldn't even speak to his private staff, which was unusual for him. And then it all came pouring out at a private social occasion. He said, the German people have been fooled, and by Neville Chamberlain of all people. And what he was referring to was that Chamberlain, because he was the architect of a peace agreement, the German people staged a kind of anti-Hitler protest in the sixth year of his rule by cheering Chamberlain loudly whenever he appeared. Mm. This infuriated Hitler and was one of the reasons why I think he drew back from attacking Czechoslovakia. So as I was reading this, um, and you really kind of spell it out, very colorful, um, the... Um, the appearance of everything with Hitler uh, was strong and uh, militaristic and streamlined. And, you know, Mussolini is there, the same thing. And here comes a guy who kind of looks like a walrus and uh, another guy who looks old and frail coming to the meeting. Those two guys must have seen the English as complete... Um, things of the past and and just weak. Well, I think that that's true. There was a great contrast in Munich between you know the the fascists, the Germans and the Italians, mostly quite young men uh, in their smart uniforms, and these dowdy, uh, quite elderly civilians in their crumpled suits who've flown into Munich. But appearances are a bit deceptive. One of the other reasons I wanted to put Chamberlain in the novel is that he, is, he was a tough old bird. And, and, and Winston Churchill said that about him too. Um, he was a really dominant prime minister. He, he, he bossed it and lauded it over his colleagues. And he was um, quite vain and arrogant in his way. And as determined on peace as Hitler was on war, and Hitler, he drove Hitler mad um, because Hitler was not really interested. The pretext for war was to re the return of three and a half million Germans who'd been 
assigned to this new state of Czechoslovakia in 1919 after the First World War. But that, that was only the pretext. The reality was, of course, that Hitler wanted a war of conquest into the East, you know, the, the subject I cover in Fatherland. Um, Chamberlain was determined to keep Britain out of a war on this issue. We didn't have a Czech, uh, treaty with Czechoslovakia, but the French did. So if Hitler had attacked Czechoslovakia, the French would have been legally obliged to go to Czechoslovakia's defense, and the British would have felt obliged to stand by France. So it would have been like the First World War, with all the countries being dragged in. Chamberlain wanted to avoid this. So he actually flew to see Hitler, which was a sensational development, especially for a man in his 70, 70th year. And it was a grave mistake on Hitler's part to agree to see Chamberlain, because Chamberlain naturally asked him what were his grievances, and Hitler told him. And Chamberlain said, leave it with me, I'll see what I can do, effectively. And he removed Hitler's pretext for war. He said, well, if the concern is these three and a half million Germans into Dateland, I'm sure we can arrange for them where the majority is, is German for those lands to be transferred to Germany. And this is what um, forced Hitler in the end to back down. Goebbels said, you can't fight a war on details. And Hitler couldn't do it. And so he missed that opportunity for war. And at the beginning of the novel... I put this quote from Hitler in the bunker in February 1945 when he said, we should have gone to war in 1938. September 1938 would have been the perfect time. And throughout the war, Hitler felt he was fighting it a year too late because of Munich. He'd wanted to invade France in 1939. He'd wanted to invade the Soviet Union in 1940. And instead, his timetable was 12 months behind. And in that time, the British, and more particularly perhaps the Russians, uh, rearmed massively. Yeah, I, I, have you seen the movie um, Darkest Hour yet? Yes, I have. What do you think of that? I thought it was a good piece of entertainment. I thought it was a brilliant performance by Gary Oldman. Yeah. Because I'm sympathetic to Chamberlain slightly more than most people are, I yeah. know. I felt that it was unfair on Chamberlain because, first of all, who built the Spitfires that were fighting the Battle of Britain? Chamberlain did um, when he spent 50% of British government revenues on rearmament in 1939, an enormous amount for a country of peace. Right. It, and also Chamberlain, because of his experience dealing with Hitler, backed Churchill in rejecting any suggestion of listening to peace terms. And because Chamberlain at that time was leader of the Tory party, his was the decisive voice. And most people think that Chamberlain wanted to do a deal with Hitler. The opposite is the case. He supported Churchill very strongly and was the decisive voice on the 27th of May 1940 at the cabinet meeting where it was decided to not even hear what Hitler's peace terms were. Hmm. Um, uh, is there, when you're looking at today's world um, and you're seeing everything that's going on, um, your, your job, and you've been so good at this, um, you look at uh, history and you see missed opportunities or chances for things to uh, to have been different. Uh, wh what do you think we're going to look back over the last 20 years and and say, if this event was understood at the time, it would have changed things? Well, I think, you know, history is um, 
is a, is, a, is a beguiling subject because it enables you to go back and see where people went wrong. And another of the quotes at the front of my book is from a great British historian called F.W. Maitland, who said, you must always remember that what now lies in the past once lay in the future. Uh, Chamberlain didn't know that Hitler planned a Holocaust. Uh, nobody could foresee exactly how the Nazi regime would go. You can only deal with things as they are, as they uh, appear to you. Obviously, there are huge forces at work in the world today um, that we are finding it very hard to even understand, let alone respond to. I think there are a large degree to do with technology and the, the way that that is completely transforming our society, uh, destroying the assumptions on which most of us have built our lives. It's a frightening time of change. And often after a long period of relative stability, which we've had since 1945, uh, this leads to a kind of complete revolution. In a way, the situation we're going through now reminds me rather of the period before 1914. Um, mm. One feels that there's something big coming along. Yeah. How I would deal with that, I, I don't know. I mean, part of the point of the, my Munich novel is that these two men, these two young men, are sort of trapped by history. Yeah. They can see they're heading to the chasm, the abyss, but there's nothing they individually can do, although they try to do it. And it feels that history has reached one of those points. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, that something big is happening, yeah. and nobody can quite grasp it. Yeah, you can, you can, feel, it, um, you can feel it coming. Um, uh, Robert, do you have a second? Can you hang on while we take a quick break? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, hold on. Robert, Robert Harris, the author of the book, uh, Munich. Uh, it is out now. It's a novel. Um, he's a tremendous writer. If you've never read a uh, Robert Harris book, you should. Um, and you can start with Munich, the novel. Noted author uh, Robert Harris, uh, the author of the new book, uh, Munich, the novel. It is about the uh, the Munich Accords and, and, uh, and uh, Neville Chamberlain and, and Hitler duking it out. And uh, what we kind of misunderstand, uh, I'm, I'm finding out as I'm reading this, Neville Chamberlain's, you know, we'll, we have peace in our day. That was the Munich Treaty. Uh, and Hitler saw that as a loss. It's a great, uh, a thrilling novel and that I think you really enjoy. Uh, Robert is one of my, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, I fell in love with his stuff with Fatherland, which came out in the 90s. And I'm a little upset that you... you you can't buy on Kindle anymore, um, but uh, Fatherland. I've also I've read five or six of your books, Robert, and uh, uh, one of them that I want to talk to you about is uh, the Fear Index. You, you, yeah. A minute ago, you said you know you were concerned about technology and how that's going to change us, uh, and the Fear Index is is AI gone crazy. And it, it, it makes you look at AI in a completely different way. Yes, it's about a, a, a hedge fund manager in um, Geneva who used to work for the Large Hadron Collider um, and who, who sets up an artificially intelligent um, algorithmic trading operation, um, which, like Frankenstein's monster also in Geneva, um, uh, goes out of control. And um, I had a lot of fun writing it, but as you say, it's you know it's a pretty it's a pretty frightening um, superstructure over the world. This this 
this financial trading. Most of us don't understand it. And we've seen, you know, uh, in 2008 what happens when it gets out of control, uh, how it affects all our lives. And in a way, the world has never really recovered uh, from the disaster of, of the complexity of the financial world and the way in the end uh, it caused so much trouble. What is, um, what is, as a writer, if I said to you, which one's the more believable scenario? Uh, North Korea launches. Putin, um, through, you know, uh, nefarious ways, kind of uh, cobbles together the old Soviet Union and uh, is, is, is deeply embedded in all of our systems and turns us against each other. Uh, or uh, financial uh, doomsday that, that just kind of traps all of us in, into, into something uh, ugly. Well, um, I mean, you know, the, the, the second two could easily merge. Um, I think that that's what's uh, frightening. Um, North Korea, I think perhaps is in, in a weird sort of way, you know, there is a kind of mad, insane rationality to the North Korean regime in that they would blow their own brains out mm-hmm. if they launched any sort of attack. And people generally aren't quite that crazy, even if they may look it. But something like Putin that, that gradually shades into a conflict that gets out of hand, that's much more the way things go in history. You know, the, the, the Russian occupation of the Crimea was really the nearest thing we've seen to the Sudetenland crisis. Oh, yeah. um, uh, and I'm, I was reading your book. Did the West do anything? No, not really. They, yeah. simply, they, they put on sanctions, but that was it. Yeah, as I'm reading Munich and he's talking about that, and, I, and that's all I could think of, is this is exactly the same argument that, that Putin was making. Yes, and of course, you see, for the Western governments... Um, and for most Western people, the Crimea seems to be Russia's backyard. You know, you assume that it was really part of yeah. Russia. Most people would have thought there's no appetite really to fight or suffer over over an issue like that, just as I don't think there was much in 1938 in Britain. Bearing in mind, it was only 20 years after the First World War where the British alone had lost three-quarters of a million men killed. There was no appetite to fight over that issue. And that's one of the things you've got to think about, Munich, I think. You've got to put it in the context of its time. Yeah. Chamberlain said he thought there would be a spiritual breakdown in Britain if the ordinary people didn't see their leaders trying to do everything possible to avoid another great war. Uh, he destroyed his reputation trying to avoid it. But I think in the end he did do a service, even if inadvertently, in giving the country a year or more to rearm. Mm. And also it made it it gave it a moral superiority and strength that Churchill was able to draw on, mm-hmm. as we see in Darkest Hour. The uh, name of the book is Munich, a novel. The author is Robert Harris. Robert, thank you so much. God bless. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is the best of Glenn Beck. So Netflix has a new movie out with Jack Black. It's called The Polka King. And uh, The Polka King is an actual guy. And... I started looking into him and I thought, we, we have to talk to this guy. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Jan Lewan, and he is from uh, Poland. He was born in uh, uh, Nazi-controlled uh, Poland and grew up under the Soviet Union, came over here, wanted to make it big, uh, fell into a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I should say he started a Ponzi scheme and others fell into it. Um, he 
live the high life, met the Pope, Pope John, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, had real notoriety in the polka world. Uh, his, his music was nominated for a Grammy, and then he went to jail where he was stabbed in prison. He is out now and has a whole uh, lifetime of interesting stories. Welcome, Juan Lawan. How are you, sir? Fine. How are you? <laughs> very, very good. So, so let's start with uh, when, when did you come over here in the United States and, and what was life like back in Poland for you? Well, when you live in a communist uh, regime, uh, the life is uh, terrifying every day. Um, you couldn't trust nobody and uh, you're living always with the fear that you're going to be punished for, for anything. So uh, life in the communist is definitely a, a very negative, very depressing life. So you came under uh, at the height of the Cold War with uh, Ronald Reagan, which must have been. It's, yep, it's exactly it. So you come over here, you move to Pennsylvania and you become the Polka King. Tell me. Well, <laughs> Uh, okay, the, the Polka King, you know, that it came along because yeah. uh, when uh, I guess your question is uh, how I uh, went to that. Um, I learned that uh, uh, nostalgia to Poland for the people who came here after the Second War, and many of them cannot go back to Poland during the communist regime. Uh, many cases they will find out in, in jail. Uh, since they didn't come back mm -hmm. to Poland after Second War. So that was the fear on this, and, and they were all um, just there for me because I was start learning English a, a little bit, but I was speaking Polish. And then I, I uh, due to my education in Poland, uh, in, the, in the theatrical school, and, and this, I, I wasn't ready for that kind of entertainment with the polkas and this. And I, I found that when I turned the Polish folk music to polkas, uh, I can I gain lots of uh, viewers. I, I I mean the, my my concert hall and, and festival they were full to the last seat because they they love that uh, uh, broken English uh, Polish. Uh, right. Uh, you know, and, right. and, and, and that's that's the way it goes. So yeah. you in the in the in the movie with Jack Black, you appear to be a wide eyed. I love America and I'm going to make it big. And and it, it seems as though you you don't really know what you're doing is wrong um, until later. But you you started a, a, a Ponzi scheme. Can you? Yes, you, uh, Tell me about it, and did you know that it was wrong at first? No, not at all. I, I went with my accountant to, for the legal, legal advice, and I was advised that uh, everything is fine. A couple of days later, we went again. Everything is fine. Uh, go ahead. Um, I wasn't told I have to register. That was the that was wrong thing on the beginning. No, so I, I feel free to advertise. I... I, uh, this is perfect. That's that's again. How I gonna build the empire? Right. This, and how? What were you? What were you selling people? 
uh, well, we did, we, he created the promissory note, which I offered them 12%. And that was very easy for me on the beginning to pay that because in Poland, that time, everything was penny. And in America, you sold for tens of dollars. So I created the gift shop. When you create the gift shop, you have to you have to have money to, to, to buy these gifts, which I didn't have nothing. So people who travel with me to Poland, they saw on their own eyes, oh my gosh, that doll costs 25 cents here. And in America, I pay $20. Jan, Jan you should buy Poland. You should get everything to America and you're going to get rich and we're going to get rich. Sure, I go for it. And that's called start. Of course, later on, I learned I'm not I'm doing illegal things. That is illegal. Well, I already have huge merchandise in the silver, amber, dolls, and everything just to, to sell that. I wasn't able to sell when the accident came over, when the, when the 9-11 came over and all things fall in parts. My two musicians get killed. My son was suffering with terrible things. We all were suffering. So even though I was told don't do it, I was keep doing because when you drown, you will catch anything. So I did wrong knowing that I'm doing wrong, and I paid a high price for that. Yeah, you went to prison for how long? Uh, almost six years. And uh, you were stabbed in prison. Yes, because uh, I should never uh, finalize in, in such a terrible prison in Smyrna. That's just for people who commit uh, violent, uh, violence, uh, terrible mm-hmm. violence. Most of them, they were killers. Uh, and uh, somebody like me with the accent, with, uh, uh, with lots of to be designed with the conversation, they thought, well, he is such a soft you know, this guy, this guy is here for something what, uh, uh, what we call uh, uh, child's, uh, which I have mm. nothing to do with that. And they get angry. But that's what they say in media. My opinion on that is different. Something went wrong. Somehow somebody did the job and uh, and the guy who who really cut my neck left and right. He got 25 years on the top of his life sentence. So make no difference for him. Uh, and why he did that, I still don't know. I was very nice to him. I, I bought him coffee and commissary and everything mm. and keep conversation. And, 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 and somehow, you know, he got me when I was sleeping. So. When you can't trust a killer... Who can you trust? Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Jan, now you're you're out. Uh, Jack Black is playing you in a in a movie. What what does the future hold for you? And what is your what's your attitude about yeah. being here? Um, yeah. Well, before I go further, this, let me just say that I, I believe me, I'm very sorry for people who get caught in my situation, oh. who lost the money. I will do everything possible to to supply my restitution as much as I, ha- I can since, since I am faithful for that. But I never thought that movie going to change my life. 
uh, Jack Black told me that. He, we were talking for six months every night for two hours on the FaceTime. <laughs> and, uh, and he learned from the day I born, you know, how they got everything so perfect in the movie, I still don't know. I did send them some of my uh, uh, writing, what I was doing through this the years in prison. They learned from that, but I think uh, uh, Jack Black was great influence to the script, uh, script to mm. the script writers Maya and Wally that they did so perfect because I don't see it. Maybe it's ten percent uh, uh, Hollywood, you know. That's that is, but now. The movie gave me opportunity. I have right now in thousands of uh, very nice comments. Uh, of course, the negatives as well. But next to, um, I should say, well, if they're writing to me, they're probably just writing positive way. Mm. So, But the point is that they're asking me right now to do the concert. And I'm willing to do that. Uh, my music director, Steve Kaminsky, who actually saved the music in the movie, we have in the movie, we have top-notch arrangements for big band polka. It's not like regular <laughs> dancing, small thing, okay? I don't know. Did you saw the movie? I have not yet. I've seen several clips of it, but I have not seen the I, whole. I wish you will see the movie. I will. I will. Uh, I will watch it. Good, yeah. So uh, that is my cameraman, uh, John Cotterba from Lighting Video. He, he supplied them with um, with all of the footage which he traveled with me all the time. Mm. You're gonna see that in the movie. They did everything. I mean, my gosh, fantastic! I right. I hope I'm gonna <laughs> generate because I don't need money anymore. I wanna give to to people who suffer over that, and I'm so sorry. Believe me, I am sick over that. So, Jan Lawan. <laughs> Uh, Jan Luan, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm sorry I didn't watch the movie. I had plans with, to watch it with my family this weekend, and something came up, so we didn't watch it. But uh, uh, I'm anxious to see it. Uh, please, you, you, are, you, are, yeah. you have led a very interesting life, and I wish you all the best, sir. God bless. You know what I love about living in this, uh, this time period, is especially if you saw The Post. Have you seen the movie The Post yet? I have not seen okay. that yet. It's really good, worth seeing. Um, but you, you'll see in that when they release the Pentagon Papers and the New York Times is shut down uh, and they say you can't release anymore, uh, there's no place to go. If the Washington Post doesn't release them, there's no place to go. Government wins. You can't release the papers. It seems so odd that that news couldn't come out, but that's the way it was. The Monica Lewinsky stuff, if it wasn't for Matt Drudge, we may not have known that. The Internet changed everything. Back in the 80s, I remember trickle-down economics, and it was always lampooned, and you could never, you could make a case, but you could never make a, a media case because you didn't have control of it. Going around the uh, Internet now, Washington Free Beacon. Um, here's what people said about trickle-down economics and the president's tax plan and what actually happened once it was passed. It feels like you're relying on this tax cut of the corporations, of the wealthy, to trickle down. Yeah, Southwest and American Airlines both announcing they're going to give $1,000 bonuses to employees following the tax overhaul. Wage increases don't follow tax cuts like this. So the world's largest retailer giving its U.S. employees a bonus, a wage increase, and expanded maternity and parental leave. Ah. So you're creating a huge tax cut. Right. And you might not get wage growth. Right. The 
Capital One Financial, which just confirmed to CNBC that they will raise the minimum wage for all U.S.-based employees at Capital One to $15 per hour. And anybody who thinks that this corporate tax cut is going to trickle down to lift wages has a staggering ignorance of how public companies function. Wells Fargo said it would raise its minimum wage to $15 per hour. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I love that he's just so sure of himself on that last one. Well, because, you know what, they could be sure of themselves because there wasn't anybody that would have given that information. Back in the 80s, if CBS, NBC, or ABC didn't make those uh, those uh, stories about what the companies were actually doing, it didn't happen. I mean, it was like it didn't happen. Now you have enough outlets and you have control of the media yourself to where you can grab those snippets you can edit those things and you can show no this is exactly what happens they have no fear that the the liberals with trickle-down economics had no fear of this turning around on them because it never has Mm. but now we have the internet it's interesting too to see these companies take these stands normally Companies, even companies that lean right, don't want to take stands that associate themselves with Republicans publicly. But this is such a clear win for companies. And, you know, companies really do this. Yeah, companies really do this. I mean, I think people, they want their employees happy. There might be selfish reasons for it, right? They want their their, their uh, employees happy. They like the PR of saying, hey, we got a bunch of extra money. And, you know, we're going to distribute that to the people who work for us. There are some selfish reasons for it, but who cares? I mean, it's great. It's great that people, you know, are able to make plans, long-term plans now. These are all permanent uh, mm-hmm. changes until, I mean, permanent is Ten. permanent as they get, yeah. um, you know, with lawmaking, but permanent changes for corporations. And they are able to really plan for their long-term, uh, you know, company's well-being and their employees' well-being. And this is a big change. I mean... It's not it's not the most bold tax plan we've ever seen. It's not uh imagine imagine what would have happened had they done a flat tax rate. Oh my gosh. If they would have done imagine? a flat tax rate, can you imagine the money that would have poured into the average family's home? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean cuz this is really a, it was really a more of a corporate plan, right? I mean it was not particularly uh, life changing when it comes to the individual side. Though yes. I'll take anything, right? I'll take right. any any dollar amount you want to give me of my own money. I'll willingly accept it and act like you're doing me a favor. Uh, you know, the, for the corporation side, it actually is a really big difference. They, it is. They no longer have to. I mean, they don't have to make these big changes. There's so many people who said it wasn't going to be a big deal because their effective rate was this low anyway. It's shown to be a big, a big change deal. for these companies. A big deal. Glenn Beck Mercury.